All right. It's okay with her. It's okay with me. Okay. Um, I have a few things to distribute. Will we get to this this week? Doesn't seem likely, but we may. It's um, will we get to it this term? <laughs> Could be. Um, we are actually going to speed up a little bit, um, only in the sense that what we what we've been doing for the for the two weeks that we've um, uh, had class already is looking really, really closely at micro effects. Um, but partly, I hope you already feel expanding, I mean, expanding out from the start, but expanding out still farther into larger poetic effects. So just to um, go over and to repeat a little bit what we said about the nurse's song at the end, what I was suggesting to you was that and I think it, I, I think this is actually an easy case to make, but I didn't want to make it in the easiest way of making the case, is that in both versions of the nurse's song, the innocence version and the experience version, um, what was actually happening is we were hearing or reading in the fictional world to which we had access to. We were hearing or reading the children's ideas of the nurse who was taking care of them. That is to say that if you wanted in the fictional world a source for the nurse, for where these words are coming from, a source for the song, and it's called a song, which means by its very nature it's fictional. A book called Songs of Innocence is in fact in our world, in a real world, in the real world, um, a book called Songs of Innocence is not a song book, but a book of poems. Because there's no music there, and we don't know what music or what setting um, Blake was imagining for these songs. There's a sense in which he wasn't imagining any, or in which he was, imag in which he was imagining so many that, that um, it comes to the same thing. as no particular setting for the songs. Many people have done settings of Blake's songs, um, as many people have done settings of um, Dickinson poems, for example. Um, many people have done settings for Blake's songs. Um, but I always think that um, setting poems to music, things that were not written um, for music to begin with, that setting them to music can do really interesting things. Uh, Beethoven would be the most famous example of this in the Ninth Symphony. Can do really interesting things to the poems, but they're no longer the poems. Um, there are poems that we read where the music is lost. Uh, most obviously Homer, but even in English poetry, songs um, by Wyatt, um, Thomas Wyatt, the great 16th century poet, um, where we don't know the music that his poems were set to and we read them as poems. But in Songs of Innocence and of Experience, we are reading poems that in the fictional world that they come from are songs. But in our world, they're not songs, they're poems. And um, that distinction between the fictional world and our world is something that we will talk about, we'll have occasion to talk about, um, in different ways in the course of the course. But in the fictional world of innocence, and then again in the fictional world of experience, which is a more clear-sighted or a more cynical version of the world of innocence, what we are reading are the songs 
that the children are imagining or composing or producing and projecting onto their nurse. That's the claim that um, I was asking you to consider. That you can't really make sense of the difference between the two nurses' songs unless you see that as a difference in the way the nurse is perceived by children who are innocent and then by older children who are experienced. You would have to see the nurse, uh, you guys, I, I mean, I think part of the way you can feel this is that there's a stress that um, in the way you were trying to interpret the poem that didn't quite make sense, which is you guys wanted to see the nurse in the Songs of Innocence as substantially younger than the nurse in the, song, in the Songs of Experience. Um, that is, you want to see, some of you at any rate, want to see the nurse in the Songs of Innocence as really just a kind of very slightly older babysitter type and not a true nurse, whereas the nurse in the Songs of Experience would be one of the um, less pleasant characters on Downton Abbey. Um, and that, sure, that works, but that's a way of registering the difference between the two nurses. Um, but socially, the point would be that um, on first reading, we would think the nurse in, exper in experience is what nurses are really like, whereas the nurse in innocence is not what nurses are really like, what nurses seem to be like to their charges. Experience is always, in the Songs of Innocence and Experience, experience is always saying, this is, no, this is what it's really like. What it looked like to innocent eyes is not what it's really like. And here is what things are really like. Um, pity in the Songs of Innocence, for example, is just one of the wonderful attributes of God. Um, mercy, pity, um, faith, and love. In experience, the speaker of the corresponding poem says, pity would be no more if we did not make somebody poor. Um, that is, that pity is a sign of the evilness, even of those who feel pity, that they feel pity for the destruction they themselves make. Um, that pity is a sign of inequality, and it's a sign that people demonstrate to themselves to show that they are not really supporting inequality. It just happened that way, and they feel sorry for the people um, for whom bad things have happened. So throughout, in the Songs of Experience, um, what they're representing their take as um, the, the true, un, undeceived version of what you get in Innocence. Well, what that would mean, let's follow that sort of very basic idea and say, well, what that would mean then is that the innocent nurse, the nurse in the Songs of Innocence, that can't be the true nurse. So why do we get that vision of the nurse? Well, that's easy, because that's the children's vision of the nurse. Um, that's what they think of as the nurse. I remember when I was um, in elementary school, I used to run home, it was six blocks from my school to my house, and I always wrote, ran by um, a home for the aged. Um, and there, was, there were very, very, very old people who would sit outside when it was sunny in their wheelchairs covered with blankets. And as I ran by them, you know, I was, I was what, um, 10 years old, I was always thinking to myself um, how they were thinking about me that I was using the elan of youth and just running by without a thought 
um, about what it looked like to them who, since they couldn't move, and here was this, this young kid just running by them, and they weren't, um, and not even thinking about um, what it was like to them, but the pleasure they must have taken in the fact that I wasn't thinking about what it was going to be like when I was very old and unable um, to, um, to, to run at all, but would be watching other kids running. Um, so I had this idea of their idea of the fact that I had no idea of their ideas. Um, and that was a pleasure. And in fact, I would now say it was a very innocent pleasure. Um, that is that I was imagining them as um, what I had read about in like Jack London stories or whatever about the relation of old people to young people um, or Robert, Robert Louis Stevenson or, or, or whatever. Um, I think that's what the kids in the, in the innocent version of the nurse's song are thinking of the nurse really, really liking them so much and taking pleasure and in a sense expressing a kind of love by imagining the nurse the way the songs of innocence imagine the nurse. If that's true, if that's a deceived version of the nurse, what we can derive from that is another point, which is that in that case, the song of, of experience, the parallel poem, the song of experience, must also parallel the idea that it's the children's view of the nurse. And in that case, yes, we're talking about older children. And what the older children are thinking as they are whispering in the dale and wasting their nights in disguise and their springs in sexual play, what they're thinking is, yes, the nurse remembers when she was doing this sort of stuff too. So in other words, the children know of the nurse that the nurse was once an adolescent um, hiding from nurses and um, doing the sort of thing that they're doing in closets and in dales and behind trees and so forth. Um, and part of the pleasure that they're, part of the sexual pleasure that they're taking is a standard um, um, feature of sexual pleasure, which is its illicitness. That is that, um, as Donald Barthelme put it, guilty pleasures are the best um, in his book called Guilty Pleasures. Um, as um, Blake himself put it, bread is sweet, but bread eaten in secret is far sweeter still. That is that, that part of the sexual pleasure of the children in, or the adolescence in the experienced version of the nurse's song is the idea that it's secret, that it has to be done whisperingly, that, um, that there's a sense of something illicit going on. But in order for them to get the sense of something illicit, that they are doing something illicit, that the fun here is partly in its illicitness, um, in order to get that sense, they have to imagine who they're hiding from. And then they have to imagine that the person that they are hiding from is suspicious but unable to prove it. So that, there you can see them projecting too onto a nurse whom they imagine too old now to um, have the experience that they are taking even more pleasure in having. But then the structure is the same. In both cases, um, the children are scripting a song for how they're seen from the outside. <coughs> and 
because the children in the experienced version of the nurse's song are older, the song that they're scripting is um, an experienced song and not an innocent song, but that doesn't make it any truer. It makes them think it's truer. It makes them think that they have now, that with sexual um, awakening, they've also understood something about um, human life that they didn't know as children, understood something about human pleasures that they didn't know when they were younger. But in both cases, imagine them scripting um, what they look like to the nurse, and they are imagining the nurse imagining them. Now, just one, one other thing, Rob. Um, if this seems far-fetched to you, um, write a paper. Um, I'll just say in general, since, since I just said that, uh, your papers, the more they disagree with me, the more you'll have something worth saying, um, and that's a good thing. Um, disagreeing with me in papers, uh, not just, and you're just wrong, and I can't believe what you're saying. I don't understand it. That's not a good paper. But show me that I'm wrong. Convince me that I'm wrong. Um, and you're halfway to um, what you want to be doing in a paper. Um, if, this thing, if this seems far-fetched to you, um, here's an easy way, though, to understand it, which is that Blake wrote both songs. Blake, in the Song of Innocence, projected a certain kind of nurse. This isn't a real nurse, it's an imagined nurse. In the Song of Experience, Blake imagined a different kind of nurse. The nurse he imagined in the Song of Innocence is an innocent nurse. The nurse that he imagined in the Song of Experience is an experienced nurse. The person who would imagine the innocent nurse feels to a lot of people like an innocent poet. That is, the original reading, when the Songs of Innocence and of Experience came out, people said, wow, Blake must have had a really bad time in the last five years. He's so much more cynical in the songs of experience. And if that's silly because it's too literal-minded, it, there's also something um, um, telling about that, which is that people would see the difference in the two songs as an index of the difference in Blake's point of view. That in the Song of Innocence, he wasn't thinking about sexual suspicion going on all the time. And in the Song of Experience, he was. So something happened to Blake. Um, that's how people read it. That's a very natural way to read the difference between the two songs and the five years that have passed between them, that something happened to Blake. Um, and if you just say, well, what would that have been? It would have been something like, um, he learned about sexuality and its unhappiness. Um, he learned about sexuality and the, um, the, the um, um, excoriating component of sexual um, jealousy and of, um, of um, the ambivalence of the illicitness of sexual experience, that somehow that happened in the five years between those two poems. Obviously it didn't because Blake was already 30 when he wrote the Song of Innocence. He wasn't 12, although he wrote poems that we read when he was 12. They're amazing poems, even when he was 12. It's, so, it's sort of embarrassing how good they are. Um, the, but he was 30. He knew all about all the things that he knew about when he was 35. Um, but if that feels right, then we could say that, yeah, what you can feel is that the Song of Innocence is a song 
composed by someone who is about five years younger than the person who composes the Song of Experience. And all we're doing is transposing that down the timeline to, let's say, 9 and 14 or 10 and 15. The Song of Innocence is a song for a 10-year-old, a song that feels um, perfectly appropriate for a 10-year-old to sing, a song a 10-year-old might sing. Whether the 10-year-old wrote the song or not, it's a song for and of a 10-year-old. The Song of Experience is much more the song that a 15-year-old might sing, the song of and for a 15-year-old. But it's not the difference in the nurse. It's the difference in the singer of the song's idea of the nurse. OK, Rob, you've been waiting. Oh, I was just going to mention, in, in the nurse song, in the second one, the experience one, if read from the children's, if it is from the children's yeah. point of view, and it kind of gains a certain amount of guilt. Yeah. You know, that, like that, when when in that close reading, it strikes me more as guilt than anything else. Like, like almost like they feel okay. bad. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that that um, once you see the speaker as as the children, um, as the children's imagining of the nurse, it becomes very complicated. Um, what they're thinking, what they're dreading, what they're hoping, um, the fact that they take pleasure in their guilt, um, the fact that, that they feel guilty for the fact that they take pleasure in their guilt. Um, all of that, I think, is in the poem. Um, if you see it as um, not just the nurse saying, oh, my face turns green and pale, um, but rather they are thinking about what this is doing to the nurse who was once like them. And they are thinking, why should we be taking pleasure in this, let's say, um, if it's going to lead us to be like the nurse? Um, shouldn't we figure out some, some better way? Um, shouldn't we make sex a beautiful thing rather than an illicit thing? There are all sorts of um, ideas that will then arise. And I think that's absolutely right to notice their guilt. Nick. Um, would he have written Songs of Innocence and Experience? Or would he have written Songs of Innocence with the intention of writing experience? So I have a quick answer. I think that's a great question. And it's partly a great question because the Songs of Experience, as I said on Thursday, never came out alone. Um, so what that means is they are always presented to us in the context of the Songs of Innocence. So the question is, what if you only had that context, as, as people only did five years earlier, or for five years after the Songs of Innocence were published? The very quick answer to that that I would give you is the very title, Songs of Innocence, um, bespeaks a knowledge of an alternative. Um, you probably all know this is a, this is a very hoary ant anthropological chestnut. Um, that the name of um, all people in kind of anthropological times when they're not aware of other tribes, other groups, other clans, or only aware of them very intermittently, the name that peoples always have for themselves in whatever language is always translated as the people. Um, that is, so when, you know, we talk, uh, when we get, when we talk about, um, Amazon tribes, for example. You know, it's one of those National Geographic things. You read about this Amazon tribe, and then there'll always be a parenthesis saying, um, their name means the people. Um, so that's a sort of thing. You only, you only give yourself a name like Americans um, 
when you're aware of otherness, when you're aware that, um, that you're not the default mode of the people. You would only name these songs songs of innocence when you became aware that there was not a default, that, that this wasn't the default mode of being was innocent. Um, if you say something like, look at me, I'm innocent, that's a good sign that you're not. Um, like my 10-year-old self, thinking of these very old people thinking of me as unaware of the fact that they were um, thinking about me from their very old perspective. Um, I wasn't the innocent that I imagined them imagining me being. Um, and I think that's what the title is um, already giving you. Would the children know that was the title of the Songs of Innocence? No, they wouldn't. Um, but we are asked, the very title of the book asks us to read ironically. You know, what, imagine that the name of the book were something slightly more tendentious, like Before the Fall. Then it would be obvious um, that we have to see the fragility and, and the iffiness of this world. To take an example, does anyone know the, the innocent version of the chimney sweep? Um, you know it, can you describe it? Yeah. You only remember the experience one. Well, the experience one is very bitter. So chimney sweeps, um, can you guys see if you have it in your larger edition? Laura took mine. She thinks it's hers. She just gave this to me and said, good, I'm taking the big one. Um, but it would be called the chimney sweep. Or did you, Jesse, did you bring your, your Blake? Um, it begins, my mother died. Yay. Okay, so um, <coughs> my mother died when I was very young is the first line. It may not be. It may not be in the Big Norton either, um, but it's definitely in there. You want the, the innocence one? The innocence one, yeah. Here it is. Um, you're a great reader, but let me read it just because I know it. Um, so there's an experienced version of this poem, which is quite um, quite bitter. The experienced version of the chimney sweeper, um, which basically says. Um, it, it, it may actually be worth um, reading the experience version first, if I can find it quickly. Um, is there a table of contents? There is. It's after the introduction, stranger. <sighs> That's because they really want you paging through the introduction because they know you won't. Richard Holmes is great, though, so you should. Um, Earth's Answer, The Chimney Sweeper, 37. Um, are these page numbers? Yes. Um, so here's the experience version. Um, and what you should know is that, well, you probably do know, but that in um, Blake's time, late 18th century, and really through Victorian eras, it's one, the Victorian era is one of the things Marx complains about, um, chimneys had to be cleaned. And the only people small enough to clean chimneys were little children. Um, so this was part of the really horrific child labor that little children were um, forced to do was, was um, sweeping chimneys. If you didn't sweep a chimney, the house would, would burn up um, because they were burning um, really, really dirty wood and really, really dirty coal. Um, and, but what that meant was these little children were actually um, 
um, slithering up and down chimneys through this utterly disgusting gunk of tar and carcinogens of all sorts. It wasn't, oh, how cute, you know, you have some ashes on you. It was, they were just covered with tar and covered with gunk. Um, and it was um, unimaginably unhealthy. Um, so the experienced version of the chimney sweeper is a little black thing among the snow crying, weep, weep, in notes of woe. Weep, weep is uh, a child's lisping way of trying to say sweep, sweep. They're offering, the, he's offering his service. Um, so he's saying weep, weep, hoping that someone will say, yes, come sweep my, my chimney. So just get the horrible cuteness of that or the horror to which cuteness is put. Um, a little black thing among the snow crying, weep, weep, in notes of woe. Where thy father and mother say, and the child answers, they are both gone up to church. Sorry, they are both gone up to the church to pray. Because I was happy upon the heath and smiled among the winter snow, they clothed me in the clothes of death and taught me to sing the notes of woe. And because I am happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury and are gone to praise God and his priest and king who make up a heaven of our misery. So that's a song for the 99%. Um, but notice that, of course, that's not the, this is not the chimney, this is not the little child himself singing. Um, they're always boys, by the way, the chimney sweeps. This isn't the little child himself singing. This is what he should be singing if he understood what Blake understands. Blake is putting those words in his voice. Um, and it's quite um, a powerful indictment of those who make up a heaven of our misery. So here's the innocent version, which really is innocent. When my mother died, I was very young, and my father, <coughs> excuse me, and my father sold me, while yet my tongue could scarcely cry, weep, 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 weep. So your chimneys I sweep, and in soot I sleep. Okay, that's projected, and that doesn't sound so innocent. Um, depends on the tone that you give it. Um, but it will turn out from the rest of the poem that the tone that you should give it is not a bitter one. Um, that it's truth, but he's not complaining. There's little Tom Dacre, another sweep, there's little Tom Dacre who cried when his head that curled like a lamb's back was shaved. So I said, hush Tom, never mind it, for when your head's bare, you know that the soot cannot spoil your white hair. So here's this little child with very light blonde hair who cried when his hair was cut off so he could um, get up and down the chimneys more easily. Um, but the speaker, who is so sweet, says, no, that way your hair won't be ruined. It's OK. And so he was quiet. And that very night, as Tom was asleeping, he had such a sight that thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned, and Jack, were all of them locked up in coffins of black. And by came an angel who had a bright key, and he opened the coffins and set them all free. So he had a nightmare that they're all locked in coffins of black. Terrible thing. What are those coffins of black? Chimneys. The chimneys. 
but it was such a nice dream, is what the speaker is saying. He had a great dream that night because by came an angel who had a bright key, and he opened the coffins and set them all free. And then down a green plain, leaping, laughing, they run and wash in a river and shine in the sun. Then naked and white, all their bags left behind, they rise upon clouds and sport in the wind. And the angel told Tom, if he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want joy. And so Tom awoke and we rose in the dark and got with our bags and our brushes to work. Though the morning was cold, Tom was happy and warm. So, if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. So, basically, they have this horrible life, but Tom has a nightmare that turns into a good dream. And what Blake is saying, but what the speaker has no idea of, is that this is a critique of the... Um, consolation offered by religion. Basically, this poem in four stanzas is saying that the political reason for religious doctrine and for religious assurance is to keep people working, keep people doing their duty in the most horrific circumstances, thinking that when they die they will go to heaven. So the angel with a bright key is actually evil in this poem. The angel with a bright key is someone guaranteeing a better life in another world which doesn't exist as far as Blake is concerned. It's a promise but not a fulfillment. And what does the angel say? That if he, if he does his work he'll have God for his father. But we know from the first line or from the first two lines that fathers are not good in this poem. That is, the, the irony here is the first two lines are, my mother died when I was very young, and my father sold me, while yet my tongue could scarcely cry, weep, 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 weep. And the idea would be that that's simply um, par for the course, that uh, people go around the chimney sweep, say to each other, when did your mother die? Not, um, is your mother still alive? Do you get along with your mother? But just that's the world they live in where you say to people, when did your mother die? And this sweep answers. My mother died when I was very young. Notice how different it would be if the poem began, when I was very young, my mother died. That is, that would be a Dickensian disaster. You know, I'm different from um, most people. It's terrible. When I was very young, something terrible happened to me. My mother died. But this is just, yeah. The common theme of nature is death of mothers, to alter a line in Hamlet. Um, my mother died when I was very young. Um, and how old were you when your father sold you? Oh, my father sold me while yet my tongue could, scarce could cry, weep, 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 weep. That is, mothers die, fathers sell. That's true of all mothers and fathers. That's the implication that that's what the child thinks at the beginning of the poem. Mothers die and then fathers sell you off. And, again, in a Dickensian way, except it's universal. Um, in that case, if you, if you take that line seriously, then um, you'll have God for your father. Doesn't mean what he wants it to mean, which is you lost a father, but you got a better father. What it means instead is, father, sell you. If God is your father, boy, are you ever going to be sold. 
Um, it's a very anti-God poem, although the sweep himself, the speaker, doesn't know that. The, the presenter of the poem, and that's in a sense what um, um, we're returning to here, is a distinction in fiction between the presenter of a poem, even a fictional presenter of a poem, and the speaker of a poem. Any poem, this is a subtle but important point, any poem will always have a kind of fictional presenter, and what that fictional presenter presents is a fictional speaker. So to take an obvious example, um, if someone writes a love poem, um, I love you, words cannot express how much I love you, but you're gone, then the presenter loves that person and presents a fictional speaker who's addressing that person, even though that person isn't there. So that, there the distinction between presenter and speaker is small, but it's still real. If, you, if, if a poem is written in passion and despair to someone who is absent, then the speaker is addressing that absent person as though he or she is present. But the presenter is presenting a speaker talking to the absent person as though present, but the presenter is presenting a speaker who's talking to an absent person as though present. And that difference is always one to keep in mind. It's not that there's one speaker to a poem. Um, remember when we talked about Auden, I said, let's just call the speaker Auden. Um, but now we're going to go the other way and split however subtly we need to split between um, different fictional semi-characters or hemi-demi-semi-characters who have a different perspective on the poem that we are reading. The speaker, the, the presenter of that speaker, the writer who is presented, the presenter of that speaker, and ultimately the poet, him or herself. Um, these are all, they, these are differences that we have to tease out. Easy enough to do with the nurse's song. Um, that is, clearly we have two different presenters, an innocent presenter and an experienced presenter, um, who's presenting a nurse who is innocent in the songs of innocence and experienced in the songs of experience. If we now ask, who is that presenter in the song of innocence? I think your best answer is the children. Who is that presenter in the songs of experience? I think your best answer is the children, but a different set of children. And then you have Blake. And teasing out those differences will get you some of the subtlety of effect of a lot of lyric poems, which depend for their effect on subtlety. Um, let's look at um, Casabianca. The, uh, the original version is Hemans's um, from 1826. And um, it tells, I know a lot of you liked it best. Um, so what she's doing is telling a story. It's on page 899 of the Norton. Um, what she's doing is telling um, a story of an event that actually happened. Um, the Norton actually gives you her note um, about it. Um, who wants to read it? Who besides Jesse wants to read it? Yes, Isabel. The boy stood on the burning deck with all that he had fled. The flame that lit the battle's wreck shone round him or, or the dead. 
Yet beautiful and bright he stood, as born to rule the storm, a creature of her old blood, a proud though childlike form. The flames rolled on, he would not go without his father's word. That father, faint in death below, his voice no longer heard. He called aloud, Say, father, say, if yet my task is done. He knew not that the chieftain lay, unconscious of his son. Speak, father, once again, he cried, if I may yet be gone. And but the booming shots replied, and fast the flames rolled on. Upon his brow he felt their breath, and in his waving hair, and looked from that lone post of death in still yet brave despair, and shouted but once more aloud, My father, must I stay? While o'er him fast through sail and shroud the wreathing flame fires made way. They wrapped the ship in splendor wild, they caught the flag on high, and streamed above the gallant child like banners in the sky. There came a burst of thunder sound, the boy, oh, where was he? Ask of the winds that far around fragments strewed the sea. With mast and helm and pennon fair that well had borne their part, the noblest thing which perished there was that young faithful heart. Great, thank you. Um, so what's a very quick plot summary of the poem? Yeah, Rob. It's on a ship being attacked. And uh, his mm. father, I guess, gets shot and is dying, and, or died. Yeah, or wound. It's, he's yeah. unconscious, so he's, he's um, stunned. He, he dies. He's one of the things that die in the poem. Yeah. Yeah. And even though shots are ringing out around him and the ship is sinking, he won't leave his father's side? Yeah, and he also won't leave the ship. That is, when he says, Father, must I stay? Um, the idea would be that that we're that from our point of view, his father is mortally wounded and is <coughs> unconscious. And from our point of view, watching this, we want him rescued. Um, that is, if only he would jump off the ship, at least the child would be rescued. Um, but his father has said, stay on the deck um, until I give the order for us to, to leave or to abandon ship or whatever. And um, because his father has been mortally wounded and is unable to countermand that order, um, the child obeys it. He stays on the deck. Um, he doesn't leave even when it's clear that he should be leaving. It doesn't... Um, occur to him that his father can't countermand the off the order. So with this very great valiance that he has, he stays on the deck. And that makes him noble. It's terrible that he dies, but um, it also shows just how extraordinarily noble he is. Nobler than his father. They're both killed. But the poem ends with her saying that the, um, the noblest thing which perished there was that young, faithful heart. Um, who did what his father wanted him to do. Um, so, and a lot of you like this poem, right? I mean, what's not to like? Um, <laughs> what's not to like, Maya? That uh, in comparing him to the other noble things that perish there, uh -huh. she's talking about the parts of the boat yeah. and ignoring all the other people who were on the boat that died. Right. Um, so <laughs> what... Oh, it's not a person. <laughs> um, Yep, there came a burst of thunder sound. The boy, oh, where was he? Ask of the winds that far around with fragments strewed the sea. Ask of the winds means you'll get no answer. To ask the winds a question, that's, that's um, a semi-standard way of saying it's a hopeless question. You may as well ask the winds. Um, another, a, a, a similar or related um, idiom is it's like speaking to the winds. Um, it's they're they're cruel and inhuman and indifferent to 
um, what's really happened. Um, so they're fragments strewing the sea with mast and helm and pennon fare. Um, that is, the ship was well fitted out for this battle, and um, um, it looked like it was going to do, it, it went gaily into battle. But now that mast and helm and pennon fare, that well had borne their part. But what about everyone else? But the noblest thing which perished there was that young, faithful heart. Now, partly what she's just doing is trying to give, Hemans is a good but not a great poet, um, but what she's trying to give is a, a very visual sense of what happens when the powder explodes on the ship. I mean, what happens is, there, the, the, is that things start burning, and there's a store of powder for the cannons in the ship, and when the fire hits the powder, the whole thing explodes. And we get a really visual sense of this, that the boy has disappeared, and there's just wreckage scattered everywhere. But yeah, one of the problems is, what about everybody else? Um, he's being compared to um, the, the material detritus that's scattered on the sea, um, but what about other people. Um, yeah? I think what makes him noble is his age, because it's important that he's a boy. If he were an adult man who, you know, stayed on the deck because yeah. he, you know, he was waiting for his fathers or for the captains or somebody else to tell him, you know, he could leave, then we would say he's not noble, he's stupid, because common sense should tell you that you don't wait for somebody you know, to give you permission to go when you're in mortal danger. Yeah. But the fact that he's so young, he doesn't know any better, that's yeah. what makes him noble. Yeah, and in fact, um, just to return to what Maya said, remember all but he had fled. So everyone else, in Bishop's version, everyone else is swimming um, in the water. They've left the ship because they see what's going to happen. Um, and uh, had he been a man, exactly, he would look ridiculous standing there. Um, he would look like a character in, in one of those in, in uh, one of those great jokes. Um, yeah, we won't go into the joke. Um, but he would look ridiculous standing there. On the other hand, there's a there's a slight hint that the fact that everyone left the ship without ta making sure that he came with them um, also underscores the difference between the boy and the man who have escaped. Nick. There's also an innocence to his nonviolence. Uh, the comparison with the parts of the ship makes it more of a um, separate violent nice. tendency, whereas the boy is just this very innocent, has a will, but chooses not. Yeah, good. His name, by the way, did they say that in the note? Um, his name is, the, the, the name of the father and of the son, their last name is Casabianca. That's why. Does the note say that? Um, it's it's sort of I don't I have the note cut off here. No, yeah, young Casabianca, boy, about thirteen years old. That's your last name, um, Justin. Um, I was going back to the question of what else is not to like about the poem. If we're to take a a moral lesson from it, it's it's a kind of dark one, which is you know, go you got to go down with your ship and stick yeah. to it, no matter how old you are. Which is you know, if you're some young military aspirant who reads this, it's kind of like filling you with this, oh, you know, not necessarily a patriotism, but a kind of militant yeah. dedication, which is, I think, horrible. And, so why yeah. do you think, then, this poem was memorized for 150 years in British and American schoolrooms? Because that's 
the kind of cultures that British and British and American colonialism have been, you know, some of the strongest, you know, national sentiments in history. Exactly. Yeah, Maya. And I mean, it's a lot about loyalty um, uh -huh. and loyalty to like <coughs> the orders of his father, and thus, like in military, um, there's like absolute loyalty to your commanders and doing what they say. Yeah. Even if it doesn't make sense. Yeah, what do you, I mean, I actually remember reading this poem, although thank God we didn't have to memorize it. We memorized mm -hmm. Carl Sandburg instead. Um, but I remember reading this poem in fifth grade. <coughs> and um, what do you imagine the discussions in a fifth grade classroom about the poem, how do you imagine they go, Rob? Oh, I have some, a different All right, poem. go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to, I was going to say, Every, if everyone had fled, is there could there be any argument for in a, in a metaphorical sense for the boy being like a captain, in any sense, if he's the only one left and he's going down with the ship? Yeah, I think so. That is that um, he's the o he's the one who's doing the right thing, and because he's the one who's doing the right thing, um, he stands for um, the last defender of the ship doing the right thing. Um, so, but what do you think gets got said in fifth grade schoolrooms um, between 1826 and let's say 1976? I don't know. 100, in that 150 years, um, what do you think the the boys in in those schoolrooms were asked? Would you do the same? Yeah. And what do you think the right answer to that was? Of course. Of course. Yeah. What a noble boy. It's it's sad but right. Um, it's, it's the right thing to do. And what do you think the boys who would say, well, I think that's just stupid, what do you think their classmates would have said to them? They weren't very scared. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't have said much, just gotten them on the playground. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's definitely the fact, I don't know that Hemans meant it this way, and I suspect she didn't, but the fact that this was one of the standard poems that people memorized and were supposed to be stirred by, that very fact shows, um, that it's very useful for inculcating exactly the kind of ideology of um, duty to to um, colonial power. I mean, imagine imagine what Blake would do if he were to write the experienced version of this poem. It wouldn't be Bishop's poem, which is about something else, but it wouldn't be very unlike Bishop's poem either. She refers to, we'll talk about this, start talking about this on Wednesday, but she, re, she refers to the schoolroom platform. That is, that reciting the poem is what um, uh, you're supposed to do in the schoolroom. And um, the schoolroom platform is showing just, look how this, look at the uses to which this poem is put. It's stirring. Why? In order to get, in order to get children to commit to something you shouldn't be trying to get children to commit to. That's how Blake would push it. Um, wanna, if you want to take one page off one of your papers, why don't you write a Blakean um, experienced version of The Boy Stood on the Burning Deck? Anyone who wants to for Wednesday. OK? Oh, do you also want our notes? Yes, on Wednesday. <laughs>